Podcast 122, taking off from the song you have just heard, written by Jimmy Webb and recorded by the Brooklyn Bridge, is entitled The Worst That Could Happen. And it's a rumination briefly about the power of labels to absolutely destroy and um, defeat good things and uh, thereby categorize uh, so much that is important. And the label is Marcionite. And this is explosive if you're coming from the right of Christianity. It's perhaps completely uh, meaningless if you're anywhere else, but it's an explosive label. And it relates very much to that which is most importantly um, requisite and called for in the current milieu from religion which is a religion of one-way love. So call this a kind of 2nd century A.D. um, peroration on 
One Way Love. I've already recorded this podcast uh, once before, and it didn't come off because there was too much in it. So I've re-recorded it, and I hope this will be shorter and um, more uh, simplex, that is, simple without being simplistic. The uh, worst thing that could happen years ago in the Episcopal Church was for anyone to be labeled a Zwinglian. The fact that I was often labeled that um, makes it more, as the German language says, actuel, uh, pertinent for me. <clears throat> but in long ago days when uh, there was still tremendous energy given to uh, churchmanship matters and minor points of sort of temperamental gravitation in religion in the Episcopal setting at least, and in all settings, but that was mine, now these things don't matter because the whole thing is so up for grabs, and there's such a major need to to kind of come back uh, during a time of perpetual retrenchment. Um, there's such a really uh, core need for um, um, for renewal. But it was instructive because what would happen is if you had what would have once been called a low church view of the Eucharist or a Protestant um, uh, view of the communion by which it was a beautiful and important liturgical embodiment of Christ's death on the cross and his promise. And it was a kind of promise made in pantomime, but that's not the right word either, made, um, made present by means of the beautiful and ancient liturgy in which the great words of Christ at the Last Supper were tied into his redeeming work on the cross and had a kind of important and immediate uh, actuality in the now through receiving the bread and the wine, but it was not, on the other hand, a uh, claim that the bread and the wine were materially or ontologically or chemically transmuted into the palpable corporeal body and blood of Christ, which was the traditional Catholic view. This, um, uh, we, we were very entitled. Uh, most Episcopalians actually had this view. Uh, then it changed a bit, and the prayer book changed. And uh, But I always noted that the worst thing that could happen to you was to be put down in your Eucharistic theology by being labeled a Zwingli. And in the reference, if you uh, just, let me just pause, was to Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer of the city of Zurich in the early 16th century, who in his reaction to the sacramental teaching of the Church of Rome in which he had been reared and ordained um, after his recovery from the plague, he wanted to stress much more the beautiful uh, symbolic character of a promise, God's promise of unconditional love being expressed in the liturgy and even in the manual actions of the priest, but not um, um, incarnate in a chemical or ontological transformation. And so in the name of anti-superstition, he had uh, uh, developed a doctrine of the Eucharist, which was later, needless to say, labeled Zwinglian, but some people would call it memorialist, and at worst people would say, in my setting, Baptisty, because they would say the Baptist church has a doctrine of the Eucharist which is completely evacuated of any kind of real substance. It's just kind of like a play, and that's why, you know, real low church evangelicals have found it so mystifying, John chapter 6, and the sort of history which does exist in the tradition of Eucharistic realism. Well, all that may mean nothing to you, but I just remember that I can tell you to this day that the worst thing that could happen to me was to be called a Zwinglian because you'd be pigeonholed, categorized, and journalistically labeled, and then everybody could move on. Well, he's a Zwinglian. Of course, well, he, he's a Zwinglian. She's a Zwinglian. <clears throat> and um, 
someone I love, a priest who worked with us, a wonderful lady, uh, failed her initial canonical exam because uh, her view of the Eucharist was so powerful and so beautiful and so familial and so warm and so inviting. And it was, uh, but the examiners thought it was Zwinglian, and that was considered more important than whether you believed in something that is, in fact, more important. But the label that we can talk about today is another label, because what and it's occasioned by a book I've been reading that is really fascinating, and I recommend it heartily. It will it will rock your world if you live in the world at all of kind of um, sort of Christian theology applied today. Uh, there was um, a uh, a um, thinker and um, theologian named Marcion who was active sort of beginning around the 140s through about the 160s or 170s. Not that much is known specifically about how his life ended, but Marcion was a Gentile Christian priest who grew up in what is now the Black Sea area of Turkey in a town called Sinope, which actually exists. And someone I know was actually a missionary there for a long time, a Christian missionary. But Sinope produced strong Christian church on the Black Sea border of, uh, of, of uh, Turkey. And uh, he um, came to believe that the core of Christianity was one-way love and that there, was, there were problems with the aspects of what had been inherited from the Old Testament. And he, um, now he's considered arch-heretic, uh, and he did take it upon himself to kind of uh, take the Gospels, which had not yet been turned into the New Testament, this was before the canonical conference uh, council, which codified the documents which we now recognize as being part of the New Testament. And he took the Gospels and he cut out sections of them which he regarded as too too much law. He was sort of the first real grace law person. In his opinion, he was taking the ministry of Christ of one-way love to sufferers and sinners. The uh, affirmations about that embodied ministry in the writings of St. Paul, and then carrying them simply to um, a consistency and a simplicity and a unity, which meant he did the remarkable thing of going back into the documents before there was a New Testament and cutting out the parts that he thought showed the effect of law, and in specifically the Old Testament. He was anti-Judaistic only in a religious sense, not in a racial sense, and uh, that can be proven chapter and verse. And he uh, was seen, therefore, as an arch-heresiarch, heresi- an arch-heretic, because he you know, dared to make these changes. And they were, in a sense, dishonest, no more dishonest than um, what um, Thomas Jefferson did at Monticello years later and what uh, Tolstoy, in his own way, uh, did in sections of his later novels. And um, he was so possessed of one-way love and the power of one-way love, and the overwhelming, he, he said it very beautifully, he said, oh, beautiful, oh, majesty, it's like the hymn to Akhenaten, the, the, the 14th century uh, uh, pharaoh who wrote a hymn to the sun god, it's full of majestic language, and Marson was so possessed of the one-way love of God to, to normal human beings, wayward, normal, lost, sinful, desolate, alone people, troubled individuals, that, that he, uh, he was so possessed of his theme that he, he he couldn't even hear, you know, he couldn't even stand to hear the law in church. And so he did this astonishing thing, no different from what Luther proposed when Luther proposed that sections of the Hebrews and the letter of, um, of, uh, of Jude and, uh, uh, parts of, uh, uh, parts of, uh, 
Second um, Peter should be omitted from the canon. Nothing more cavalier than that. But nevertheless, uh, he took it upon himself. And he did have a kind... He was so possessed of the redemption that he really uh, shortchanged the creative God. He didn't have much time for vitality and love and sex and procreation. And he had a kind of Puritan thing. But it was a Puritan thing that was rooted not in the law, but in the grace. And the, the Puritanism of it is only a very minor byproduct and, and really is a mistake. It, it, like everybody, he didn't see it all. And uh, uh, Marcion uh, had a very great, powerful thing. And what brought it to my attention is uh, this term. It's the worst thing that could happen. And uh, reading a book by a man who also was the victim and is still the victim of a label. And we're talking about labels here because remember what Huxley wrote. Aldous Huxley said that labels are libels. I'm sure he's not the first person to have said that. He was probably quoting, for all I know, somebody else. But as soon as you label somebody, you're dismissing them. And you do it all the time. I mean, you label somebody as, a, you know, he's an Obama this, or he's a Romney that, or he's a, he's a this kind of a person or that kind of a person, or he's pro this, or he's anti this, or he's a, he's a hater, or he's, a, he's a, you know, an advocate of. what you, you fill in the blanks, and you do this, and you immediately can sort of detach yourself from any kind of engagement with the person. People do this all the time. I've been the victim of it, but I've also dished it out. And uh, there was a man who, beginning in 1870 developed a huge interest in Marcion because he came to believe that Marcion's protest, or rather Marcion's affirmation of, uh, against which the uh, earliest of the Catholic uh, fathers, the later, the later Catholic fathers of the church, they protested against Marcion's affirmation. They silenced him, and they hated him, and they wrote all sorts of books against him. The only reason we know anything about him is that all his books were suppressed, but we, we know about him because people who attacked him had to occasionally quote things that he had said. So we know about him from people who hated him. It's a terrible thing. And um, Marcion, uh, uh, there was a man uh, who began to study him in 1870 and was very struck by the fact that it could be possible that the sort of key problem of early Christian church history was the rejection of Marcion, not the other way around. And that uh, when Christianity developed this uh, uh, trying to hold the law and the gospel in tension, it ultimately always was trumped. Grace was the gospel by the law, and that would account for the centuries and centuries and centuries of, of misunderstanding and often hatred on the part of normal, regular people. And this particular thinker, whose name I'll mention in a minute, don't worry, it's not a name of, you're going to be worried about, but this particular thinker, uh, came to believe that, in fact, he, he was ruminating, uh, especially after the end of World War One, why a Christianity had developed such a terrible reputation among thoughtful people in his own country, which was Germany, because the church, you see, and certainly the Church of England in Germany's enemy, England, had backed the war. And looking at the terrible, the, the terminal destruction and catastrophe to all European self-understanding that World War I constituted, he said, you know, this thing that I've been thinking about, how did Christianity take the wrong turn such that it's now universally seen as a religion of no, not to mention a religion of hypocrisy because it beat the drums of the war in August 1914, the famous August experience, the August Erlebnis, that 
the English had just as much. What are all Galsworthy's people? Why do they hate the church? Well, they hate the church partly because they were brought up in it at prep schools, and they hated having to go to church in Galsworthy's novels every day of their prep school life. But they really hate the church, partly even the hero Michael Mont, the member of parliament who's kind of a liberal. He hates Christianity. No, he, he's lost confidence in Christianity, even though he's a very spiritual man. Michael Mont in the Galsworthy novels is because he's been through World War I. And he's seen that life could produce, the world could produce World War I, and he's been in the trenches, and yet this could be what, uh, the, the church has backed this. And he's completely, let alone the church being a pharisaical institution as he's received it, only partially. So he saves my, he says to himself, I, I, I'm not going to look into Christianity for my, the answers to my suffering heart and my lovelessness and my, my desire, which is uh, constantly being frustrated by a life, wife who doesn't really love him the way he wants and needs to be loved. And so he doesn't look in the direction of the church. And so this man in Germany at the same period as Galsworthy was rejecting it, this man who was a devout Christian and a thoughtful one was trying to say, could Marcion possibly hold the key? Why is it that the Christian church has been hobbled for so many centuries, and especially in light of what was going on before, during, and after World War I. Now, that is important because it touches where we are today. This is what it touches. It touches where we are today. And that is uh, why this book, I went back and read it. Now, the book was written by a theologian uh, and uh, really a church historian, better whose name was Adolf von Harnack, Adolf Harnack or Adolf von Harnack. And uh, again, he's labeled. You, you mention him today, and people who are on the right theologically will just immediately just jump up. It's like you can, you can almost, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's like that, ting, you remember the, the Tingler, the William Castle movie from 1961 or something, where they put an electrical charge in the chairs of the theaters. Uh, I mean, I, they, they did it. I was there. You know, they put a charge, and when, 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 when the Tingler would suddenly come on, there'd be this charge in your rear end, and you'd go, whoop! The whole theater would kind of go, up, Like someone had just jabbed you in the rear, you know, you sat, sat on a tack. Well, um, you can, you literally, if you mention the name Adolf on Harnack to any group of conservative Christians who, who've studied this stuff, but only studied it, you know, one course, they'll all go, it's like the, the tingler just went through the electrical shock in their, in their chairs, uh, but they haven't read him. I mean, you ask them if they have, and they haven't. Von Harnack's History of Dogma, his seven-volume History of Dogma, is one of the most remarkable tour de forces of insight and understanding, beginning with Jesus and going through the Reformation that's ever been written. I mean, he understands the Quakers, and he understands Abelard, and he, stud- he understands St. Bernard, and he understands St. Augustine, and he understands the Jansenists, and he understands uh, the Unitarians, and he understands uh, St. Paul, and he understands St. Athanasius. Uh, it's all there, uh, completely objective. And um, But because at the end of his life he became convinced that Christianity needs to really rethink, especially this matter, not so much of the virgin birth or the Trinity, which he got a rep for, but his major contribution is actually a discussion of whether the Christian church had somehow lost the plot in the <clears throat> late... Um, second century, when it anathematized Marcion, who, while being a cavalier sort of chap, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> had a number of things, as I said, that, that would need work, had a core insight. Let me say what the core insight, according to von Harnack, but again, today, if you say von Harnack, they'll go, oh! and if you say Marcion, it's the worst that could happen to me. You know, and if you hear that, remember what the that beautiful song by the Brooklyn Bridge, you remember what the singer says? I'll never get married, never get married. He's, it's the worst that could happen. So he's never going to connect. 
well, Christianity. I mean, the worst that could happen was that was that they uh, they missed the boat on the gospel, and uh, it became a religion of law, or at least of grace and law. And we know human nature that law will always trump grace because people desperately want control and they want to be controlled, but it's, they always end up hating the person that controls them and doing the opposite. So um, it's the worst that could happen. And, and and the rest of the world has said, "Well, I'll never get married. I won't look in your direction." Whether I'm Michael Mont in the early 1920s and Smith Square, London, or whether I'm, you know, um, today, uh, millions and millions and millions and millions of people who are uh, inclined not to look in the direction of Christianity because they, because of whatever happened in the second century. Now, that may not be true. And as I said, I'm not taking away from the fact that there were some problems with it. But let me read um, a couple of things from um, Van Harnack ah! and see what you think. He writes on page 141, and by the way, um, now there is something in this world, Marcion realized, that is not of this world and is superior to it. It is proclaimed and imparted by the gospel as an incomprehensible gift. And this is a direct quote from Marcion. O miracle of miracles, rapture, marvel, and wonder, that one cannot say anything at all about the gospel, nor think of it, nor compare it with anything. It is only received in humble faith by the poor and by those who hunger and thirst after it. Now, that's very powerful. That's, a, that's, that's, that's right up there with the hymn to the sun by Akhenaten and the Psalm 40 and uh, Isaiah 40, I should say, and Psalm 23 and uh, the Beatitudes. Oh, miracle of miracles, rapture, marvel, and wonder that one, ought, that one cannot use words about the gospel, nor think of it, nor compare it with anything. It is only received in humble faith by the poor and by those who hunger and thirst. And then Van Harnack wrote, In the idea that God is nothing but love, the concept of God is at once brought to the loftiest and most unequivocal formulation. Well, that is what I'm going to close with today in the concluding message that I hope to offer, which is by way of George Harrison's song, which I hope you'll listen to at the end. In the idea that God is nothing but love, writes von Harnack in 1924, this is the second edition, although it was uh, originally published in first edition in 1920, and then, um, but it was the result of uh, 50 years of thought. In the idea that God is nothing but love, the concept of God is at once brought to the loftiest and the most unequivocal formulation. And then he writes this. Listen to this. Those today, writes von Harnack in 1924, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, those who are most profoundly acquainted with the soul of our people assure us that only the proclamation of hopeful, non-judgmental love now has any prospect of being heard. Here, Tolstoy sides with Marcion. Tolstoy could have written what we have by him by way of direct religious utterances of Marcion. Conversely, Marcion would have recognized himself in Tolstoy's Wretched and Despised Ones, and in Tolstoy's exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and in his zeal 
against common ecclesiastical Christianity. Well, whoa. well, um, you see, in um, the age that uh, von Harnack was writing in, Tolstoy was the great hope because Tolstoy had so touched a nerve with his words about the gospel after Anna Karenina in his in his novels, his fiction, and his uh, short stories, parables, and in his so-called gospel dis- disquisitions, which I find a little bit not as helpful as because they're just not fiction as his mediated work in the fictional works like Resurrection, but for what it's worth, whatever, Tolstoy had touched a nerve among hosts and hosts and hosts of highly intelligent, thoughtful people for whom the church had lost its credibility, primarily through, in Europe, the church's uh, remarkably um, two-faced backing of the First World War, uh, both especially in England and and in Germany and in Russia, you know, in holy Russia. And let me say this. Let me read one more thing. Um, he, he's written that uh, people who understand people today, writing in 1924, but let's say 2012, we are assured that only the proclamation of hopeful non judgmental love has any prospect of being heard today. And then he writes this. This much is also certain, that in church history, the gospel of Marcion has hardly ever again been proclaimed. It is true that flashes of Marcionite summer lightning flash through the entire history of the church and of dogma, from Augustine's sense of grace and freedom onward. And I would add, from Augustine, Luther, to a very large extent, many of Luther's followers, John Wesley, on a good day, and uh, many of those great uh, protagonists of the remarkably powerful and life-changing Great Awakening in this country in the 18th century, and any number of people today. But they flash through the entire history of the church. I used to always say this. And, I mean, I used to wonder about this. Why, why, does the God, why didn't it just get occasionally rediscovered? It would blow up. His words were flashes of summer lightning. My word was like buried TNT or a bomb that had been buried when it fell but had never gone off. And then excavators, you know, danger UXB, you know. Uh, you, you'd find the bomb and it would blow up. Well, well because it was a bomb. The, the, the unconditional love, one-way love is a bomb. And uh, uh, he, he, uh, uh, this uh, profound uh, thinker, Von Harnack, uh, dwelling on it for 50 years, from 1870 to 1924, comes up with the belief that, that somewhere we lost the plot, because when it came to World War I, we, we didn't have it. And uh, the rest of the world looks upon us as either pharisaical or hypocritical. Now, look, listen, I mean, what's wrong with this? I mean, what's wrong with thinking about this? I mean, are, you, are we accomplishing anything by insisting on some kind of uh, dogmatic both-and here? That is to say, you know, there's the gospel and, or it's two sides of the same thing, or yes, God loves you as you are, however, you know, uh, let's not forget that there are certain sections of the canon that say this and that. Well, um, the vast majority of uh, Jesus' words, there are exceptions, and the large majority of what St. Paul said, although there are exceptions in Paul, are unequivocal about the nature of the love that he has for sinners that forgives 70 times 7. And uh, Marcion just made this a little more radical, admittedly cavalier. You know, you have to watch your humility issue here. And um, But uh, his instincts were certainly mine. Uh, and what do I want to say to people? What do you want to say to people when you go talk to them? Do you want to, you know, uh, talk all about biblical orthodoxy, but you, you never really talk about the main concern of the New Testament, which is 70 times 7, you know? Uh, Peter, I tell you, you know, um, 
how much do you love me? I mean, love that conquers uh, betrayal, love that conquers uh, trust-breaking, love that conquers any number of malicious uh, outpourings of truly egotistical and selfish, putting yourself forward over somebody else who's meek and lovely. Uh, who in the world wants that? Uh, I was recently speaking to a lot of people who uh, about Eben Alexander's thing. I've talked about, you know, his three things he heard the angel say when this Duke-trained doctor uh, was um, dead clinically, and he heard the angel say to him as he was dead clinically that uh, that you're infinitely precious to me. He took this to be the word of God, that um, you can't do anything wrong, and there's nothing to fear. Well, now, if I laid that out to people, as I did recently, and everybody just perked up, they just loved it, because we, I love it. I mean, it's, it's what we need to hear. It's what we are desperate to hear, and we weren't, they're not getting it from the world, you know. They're not getting it from a political party. They're not getting it from a particular, you know, newfangled drug. They're not getting it from some particular, you know, thing. They're getting all sorts of other forms of categorization and uh, things that will fail you. I mean, you can elect the best person in the world, but he as a human being is going to fail you and she's going to fail you. Ideology will always fail. But what do we need to hear? You can't do anything wrong. Nothing you can do can disqualify you from my love for you. Uh, and there's nothing to fear. Who, who doesn't want a relationship that has nothing to fear of all of us? Who, who, who doesn't say that that's the essence of what it is to love freely when you have nothing to fear? And you know what? That's Marcionism. Ah, the worst that could happen. All I need to say is that, that Eben Alexander sounds a little libertine, sounds a little antinomian, and worst, it sounds uh, Marcionite, and probably worst, it might be lead to Zwinglianism. Well, then you've had it. You've categorized it and you've killed it. Now, I think this is legitimate. I think we need to hear this. I mean, will you agree with me? Uh, let's at least hear the message of one-way love. And, and um, you know, don't just rule out von Harnack. He, he knew about these things. Fifty years. I mean, let's give him a little bit of credit. I mean, he, he knew every language that's probably ever been written. And um, let's remember what he said about the, the, the formulation. Let me conclude this. And then I'll let George Harrison have the final word. And... Um, I'm very struck by this wonderful book, which you can get, by the way. It's, I think it's a 1969 translation. Yes, 1990. 1990 by a press that is in uh, this, unfortunately, titled The Labyrinth Press in Durham, North Carolina. I think... Uh, I think uh, I would like to close with this word. In the idea that God is nothing but love, the concept of God is at once brought to the loftiest and the most unequivocal formulation. And yet, this gospel has hardly ever again been proclaimed since the time of Marcion, except for those flashes of Marcionite summer lightning that flashed through the entire history of the church and a dogma right down to today, from Augustine's sense of grace and freedom onward. Thank you very much.
generation. 